Hey, and welcome back to Dorm Room History. I'm your host, Eric Andreessen, and today is episode two of our first series, The Han. Now, if you just want to jump right in right here and start listening at part two, you're more than able to. However, I do recommend for the context and for your ability to understand some of the people and ideas that we're going to be talking about now, I highly recommend going back and listening to episode one. But if you don't want to, I'm not going to stop you. Without further ado, episode two. Now, where we left off was the General Huo Chu Bing, the young 19-year-old general who, at the command of Emperor Wu, went to the northwest regions of modern-day China. And what he, what he did was he freed the Huxi Corridor. Well, free is a weird word. He pacified the Huxi Corridor. There were two tribes of Xiongnu there. Remember, the Xiongnu is not really one nation. Think of it as like the United States, an ancient Asia United States, where there were different tribes from all over the region of the steppe who got together. And now two of these tribes had been fully defeated uh, and had fully submitted to not just Huo Chu Bing, but also to the Han Dynasty. What this allowed, though, I think that I didn't get a chance to really talk about a whole lot, and I'm going to elaborate in this episode here to start off. What opening up the Huxi Corridor did was, one, it cut off the Xiongnu from their Qiang allies. Think about this. China is in the east of Asia. The Han Dynasty is in the east, center east of, of modern-day China, and it's expanding westward. And the Xiongnu are in the north and the northwest, and the Qiang are these allies that are in the south, uh, the southwest. Now, by doing this, it essentially extended an arm. You know, the Huxi Quarter is like this arm that goes west. And what it did is it cut off the northern Xiongnu from the southern Qiang, who were a vital ally of the Xiongnu, and it completely blocked those two, so they couldn't work together. But what it also did is that it allowed the Han Dynasty to establish four commandieries. And what these commandieries did is it actually established control of the region. It's one thing to beat armies in a field, and it's a huge piece in pacifying a region, is getting rid of the military threat you have there. But what they were able to do is that by setting up these commandieries, they were able to establish their own authority. The Han Dynasty's rule of law, the Han Dynasty's settlers, Han military men, Han traders. It allowed for them to have the influence over the region. And... The key part of this region is that the Silk Road was there. The northern routes of the Silk Road, the thing that you know, we all know in history that connects the west and the east and was the very lifeline of goods and, and ideas and travel between, uh, between east and west. Now, travel is a loose word. You wouldn't really travel on a vacation down the Silk Road. It would be a bad idea. It wouldn't be very fun. But the goods and the services that you sort of, that Europe would soon learn of from Marco Polo, you know, a thousand years after this, what it was able to do, the Han Dynasty were able to control this. Instead of having an area sort of infested with nomadic warriors who raid and pillage, and so obviously if you're transporting goods, having a bunch of nomadic warriors there makes it very difficult to get those goods across. Furthermore, it means the Han Dynasty is physically farther away from the places it's trading with, mainly the Parthian Empire. You know, it hadn't really been trading outside to the West. It'd been very hard to. You know, some traders had made it to the to the East, but it's very hard to know what they actually got of it. And based on what we are aware that Europeans and Arabs knew hundreds of years after this, they must have not gotten a whole lot of information out of this because they know very little about China. Now, the Hushi Corridor allowed for China, which is, in the ancient world, the most technologically and scientifically advanced civilization of the era and it was the most advanced for a very long time. All of this allowed for the Han Dynasty to control that trade, to push their ideas and whatnot elsewhere. 
So when you think about you know, the Han Dynasty, you push these goods and services out. The Han Dynasty ne- did not necessarily invent anything very new. The Han Dynasty had a couple you know, special weapons, you know, a, a hooked javelin or, or a special way to, to mount a horse. But there wasn't anything truly large that you know, sets it out. There was no uh, Damascus steel and there was no you know, invention of a tank or a, or a, or, or a gunpowder yet. But gunpowder was invented in China. The compass was invented in China. Paper and the printing press, all of these were invented later in China. And China's ability and sort of the way it evolved after capturing um, and taking over these trade routes is that it made itself more cosmopolitan. It made itself able to take in new ideas from the West and also give ideas and technologies from them to the West. And you think about modern history, and a lot of people, especially myself, oftentimes get caught up in the idea that we are more interested in sort of modern history and the and the history of the day. And I myself am more interested, you know, oftentimes in ancient history, it seems. I mean, I'm doing a podcast about it. I must be interested in it. But to me, the thing I'm most interested in is the situation we find ourselves in today. But ancient history is the ability for us to understand how we even got here. You might be thinking about East Asia. Yeah, they had some, some advancements, but I, you know, I don't really know. And I get a lot of times in school and in, and in movies and in books where we get a very Eurocentric look at history. And yes, there's many things wrong with that. It, it excludes many you know, grand things about history. The Dark Ages, for example, a term that we use in history to describe you know, the Middle Ages. But the rest of the world was not going through the Dark Ages. China, the Arab world, all of these places were going through their own Renaissance, their own Golden Age. But we look at it through a view of Europe. So to understand that is because Europe, in our mind, was the most recent you know, empire. The European powers, the most recent empire, most of the biggest events in world history that created the most death, the most advancement, you know, the most everything happened out of Europe. That was our most recent one. But what did Europe spread with? It spread, you know, and the famous quote is that it spread with guns, germs, and steel. Guns. The key factor of guns is gunpowder. And that was created by the Chinese. And the Chinese ability to be cosmopolitan, to ship these goods west, was because of their ability in the Han Dynasty to take control of these trade routes. Well, yes, it's not the sole reason, but it was the very catalyst that allowed China to go from an insular warring state's power where it was very isolated, very far in the east. Remember, transportation is hard. You have to walk these places or go as fast as a horse can travel. So when the Han Dynasty took over these regions, they had a catalyst for controlling their trade and spreading their ideas elsewhere and allowing them to grow quicker as they were able to take ideas from other places. Another key thing I wanted to look at is when you think about Han Dynasty, think about China today. What's the largest ethnic group in China? You've probably heard about the news. There's There's a large ethnic majority in China called the Han. And yes, it's very simple. These people are ethnically and culturally derived from the Han state which became the Han Dynasty. So China's whole ethnic you know, her- heritage comes from this dynasty. And most of Europe's great conquest is based in Chinese innovations. But we need to move forward. Where we left off was Huo Chubing freeing the Huixi Corridor, establishing commandieries and letting settlers come in. But the war is not over. When we left off, Wei Qing was going to the Gobi Desert. And Emperor Wu began to take a liking to Huo Chubing. And now the two armies of Wei Qing and Huo Chubing were going to link up. The plan was for them to link up, you know, Huo Chubing in the west 
and you had Weiqing in the, in the central valleys of China in, in the Ordus Loop going north to the Gobi Desert. And these two, Ho Chi Minh from the west and you had Weiqing from the center, they're going to be an unstoppable force. They've, they've, you know, beaten back several tribes. They've cleared out all these regions. They're being really successful. And now they're going to go to the Gobi Desert and finish off the Xiongnu. But Emperor Wu had a favorite. And this is why I love, you know, ancient China, too, is because it, you oftentimes get caught up in a lot of the history that they wrote, which was, you know, very numbers based. We had 2,400 helmets. Well, actually, they were more specific than that. Right here in the Book of Hadith states that they had 10,436 leather helmets. And they kept those numbers. But there's still the intrigue. And there's still the political maneuvering that you see in Rome that oftentimes is overlooked when studying China. Emperor Wu preferred Huo Chubing. Huo Chubing was a young man to be a general. Now, it wasn't necessarily crazy for the age, but he was only 20 years old. He was my age, leading a massive army all around China, all around Asia. And the original plan that Emperor Wu had declared was that for Huo Chubing to attack from Dingxiang, but a Xiongnu prisoner. Now remember, from the last episode, we heard that the, the Han Dynasty forces captured a lot of Xiongnu soldiers. Every time there was a battle, it seemed that several thousand Xiongnu fell into the hands of the Han. Now, while a lot of them probably were executed, enslaved, or sent back for other horrible, horrible, horrible things, a couple of them had to have had information that was, you know, worth knowing in the eyes of the Han. And one of these Xiongnu prisoners, you know, suggested... Now, it didn't really say, the, the writing in the Book of Han is that this prisoner merely suggested that Chan Yu, the leader of the Xiongnu, that his main force was actually not in a place that be, was actually not in Dingxiang, but was actually operating in the field to the east at the Dai Prefecture. Now, with this information, Emperor Wu, who wanted to give me a more favor to Huo Chubing, and also wanting to distance himself from Wei Qing, you know, wanting to give Wei Qing less triumph, and wanted to give the younger Huo Chubing more, ordered the two columns to switch routes. So Huo Chubing got diverted, Wei Qing got diverted, also, you know, all for the purpose that the younger Huo Chubing could have the triumphant victory. And also, you know, to guarantee, you know, in the emperor's eyes, to guarantee that Huo Chubing was able to, you know, give him every chance he could to, to win this strategic battle. He wanted him to win this battle. Yes, he was putting him against the harder forces, but he wanted Huo Chubing to win. He, you know, he wasn't looking to spite one of his own generals. He was looking to make Huo Chubing almost immortal. He wanted to give him every chance he could to triumph and was actually assigned, you know, the most elite cavalry troopers and the most elite infantrymen, you know, to engage Chan Yu and the Xiongnu uh, forces that were reported to be in the Dai Prefecture. What ended up happening was actually very straightforward. Now, the Han Dynasty forces, you know, with these elite soldiers that were given to Huo Chubing, they were simply superior to the Xiongnu forces and arguably always were superior. As we talked about in the first episode, the nomadic tribes had unbelievable abilities to ride a horse. They had unbelievable abilities of horse archery, and they were able to use, you know, the fastness of their landscape to avoid retreat. But now they were losing men. They were losing order, they had lost some princes, and they lost a couple tribes, and they were actually now, for real, on the run. It wasn't a fake route, they were very much routing. And the Han forces were just simply too good for the Xiongnu. Now, what's most incredible to me is when you look at what Huo Chubing had to do to even get into this eastern theater. Remember, he was sent to the west, 
But Emperor Wu, wanting Huo Chubing to have the triumphant victory against the main force, ends up switching the two routes. Now Huo Chubing sets off for the Dai Prefecture and marches his soldiers over 1,000 miles. Now imagine that. He had to march 1,000 miles. He had to march 1,000 miles. You know what that signifies is that, one, Emperor Wu really wanted Huo Chubing to have this big victory, but also how big... Asia really is. If you marched a thousand miles from Rome anywhere, you'd be well into Britannia. Imagine saying, you know what, I changed my mind. And imagine if Julius Caesar said, you know what, I changed my mind. I want a different, I want Mark Antony to actually go deal with something. And he sends him out of Rome, through Gaul, across the English Channel, into Britain, and then some, just to change who fights who. Hochi Bing marches over a thousand miles and directly engages with the Xiong News right-worthy prince. They have another one. They appointed one. And engages directly with the Xiongnu's uh, worthy prince of the east, which is a different translation. Same thing. He's the right-worthy prince. Now, what seems to happen in all these battles, according to the Book of Han, is that the you know, Huo Chubing's army encircles. It seems to be the big strategy, you know, a two-prong. They go around the forces of, of, of the Xiongnu. And one, what this is able to do is it stops a fleeting retreat. You know, it stops, you know, the, the famed... Parthian retreat, which you see in, in the West, where you know the horse archers retreat, they shoot from behind them, or generally do the fake retreat, as we saw in the first episode, you know, trying the army out, only to get ambushed later. So this encirclement allows them to actually trap the army. They can't do some tricky, some tricky business. They can't do anything else besides that. They have to stand up and face the more the better equipped, the better trained, and the better commanded Han army. And Huo Chubing's army absolutely annihilates the Xiongnu. Huo Chubing kills 70,443 men, according to the Book of Han. He captures three Xiongnu lords and captures 83 nobles. Now, Huo Chubing's forces were not without their own losses. They suffered a 20% casualty rate. 20% of their forces were casualties. But because of the garrisons and because of the great supply chain and all the great communication they had, they were quickly resupplied locally, um from the regions that they had just captured. Now, what's most interesting is that Huo Chubing kind of knew that he was meant to be, he was the chosen one from Emperor Wu to do this. Now, upon Huo Chubing's arrival at the Kunti Mountains, he begins to start rituals. You know, in order to symbolize this historic Han victory, massive casualties for the Xiongnu, completely decimating the rest of their forces. Some of his forces had even pursued the Xiongnu as far as Lake Bacal, and had effectively annihilated the Xiongnu clan completely in the region. In a separate division, had gone flanking to the east, far to the right, joined the forces right in time after killing 2,800, according to the Book of Han, of the Xiongnu before joining up again with them. Absolutely clinical victory, unbelievable generalship. And he does these rituals at the mountains to make sure everyone knows what he had just done. But remember that information that that prisoner had gave, that the main forces were to be, were not at Dingxiang, but really at the Dai Prefecture. But if these were really the main forces, there should not have been that easy of a victory for the Han. And that's because the main forces were not actually there. Because the main forces were actually at Dingxiang all along. The Xiongnu prisoner's information was false, meaning that Wei Qing, the general who Emperor wanted to distance himself from, wanted to give less of a chance of triumph, 
ended up having to face the main Xiongnu army. And I think this is, you know, such a wonderful, you know, piece of history, you know, wonderful by accident. You can't, you almost can't make this up. Emperor Wu, who wanted Huo Chubing to face the main Xiongnu forces, gave Huo Chubing the best of the Han military to go crush this force, switched routes, made Huo Chubing march over a thousand miles, all for this to mean nothing because where Huo Chubing was supposed to go in the first place is where the main army actually was. And Wei Qing, who he had, who Emperor Wu had tried to distance himself from, was now going to face the main force. And this was not going to be as easy of a battle as the one Huo Chubing had just experienced in the East. This was much more dramatic. Now, because we had seen that Emperor Wu had moved all the elite troopers to Huo Chubing, Wei Qing was facing the main army without the elite Han troopers. He was undermanned compared to the Eastern force that Huo Chubing had had. And a lot of it was leftovers. I mean, these troops are the ones that Huo Chubing didn't want. Huo Chubing got to pick most of his, his regiments, got to pick his subcommanders, you know, built the all-star team to go take out the main force, and went and faced the JV team. And as we can see, you know, the all-star team absolutely annihilates the JV Xiongnu team. But now Wei Qing has his own JV team, and he's facing the all-star team for the Xiongnu. Wei Qing also had many other issues at hand. Um, he had five generals under his command that required assignments, including an old but enthusiastic Li Guang. But you know, this old general had insisted that he wanted a vanguard position, you know, because Emperor Wu had promised to him, and had, you know, who had secretly messaged Wei Qing, do not do this. So Emperor Wu is really, you know, quite the reality, you know, TV personality here. He tells this one leader he's going to get a vanguard position. And then under the table tells Wei Qing, don't give it to him. And the reason it's actually, you know, very interesting is because Emperor Wu believed that he had been jinxed with bad fortune. That, that, you know, this Li Guang character was bad luck. So Emperor Wu commands Wei Qing to actually not follow through with the backhanded promise that he had given Li Guang. And Wei Qing then assigns Li Guang to combine forces with a leader known as Zhao Shiqi on a barren eastern flanking route. A horrible task to do. Remember, this is the Gobi Desert, one of the driest places on Earth. And he sends his two essentially least favorite generals. You know, he doesn't have a lot of great ones, but he sends his two least favorite ones to a barren, desolate area to run a very large eastern flanking maneuver. And yes, Li Guang knew this was bad, and he eventually stormed out of the camp in anger after being given this task. But the show must go on, and the Han army in the west mobilizes. Now, they did not have to go 1,000 miles, but they had to go 500 miles. Still, a massive task to undertake, to move your supplies, move your soldiers, keep everyone in order. And they encountered the Xiongnu's main force under Chan Yu, who themselves were carrying 80,000 cavalrymen. Now, Wei Qing was surprised by this. Remember, there's no telephone. They can't get on the phone and say, you know what? Hey, Wei Qing, it's what you being. Turns out... The force I face was not that elite. You might be facing them. In Wei Qing's eyes, he's doing the mop-up work. And he gets onto the field, and he sees 80,000 cavalry. How surprised must he be? I mean, exciting. He's a general. He must love the, the idea of having the chance at a triumphant victory. But now he's facing the best forces of the Xiongnu, and he's not expecting this because he knew that the original strategy was to let Huo Chubing and now his, his elite troops deal with the, with the Xiongnu's elite cavalry. And that's why they had switched routes. But the Xiongnu 
had been waiting for a very long time for this battle. They had planned it to be an ambush. And the Han forces, after marching 500 miles, these are the leftover soldiers, hardly the best of the bunch, were tired. They were outnumbered, and their eastern division had not yet arrived. You know, the east, the big eastern flanking thing that he had given to Li Guang had not arrived yet. They weren't even on the field. Now, the Xiongnu realizing that the Wei, that Wei Qing's forces are completely outnumbered, tired, the morale is low, and the reason their numbers might have seemed so low is because that entire eastern flanking maneuver through the barren desert that was given to Li Guang and the other Zhao Shiqi hadn't arrived yet. Where were they? And the Xiongnu immediately charged with a 10,000-strong vanguard cavalry. Now, Wei Qing is no fool. Even though he had fallen out of favor with the emperor, he was still aware of how to be a very productive general. We had seen in the first episode, well, you had listened in the first episode, that Wei Qing was very successful. Cleared the Ordis Loop, you know, did these daring nighttime raids, killed, a left, killed the left-worthy prince, and he eventually realizes, oh my god, and quickly took these very large defensive measures. Now, the thing he did was quite interesting. Now, as we talked about, the Han Dynasty had severely cut back on the use of armored chariots. Now, this is because they were too slow, they weren't as good, and they couldn't keep up with the cavalry, but they were still useful in some place, and they still had a couple. And he takes these very heavy chariots and forms them in a ring formation. Quickly, by the way, because there are 10,000 cavalrymen of the Xiongnu coming right down on their throat. And this created a mobile fortress. Now, you had the, remember, you had the regiments of archers, crossbowmen, and infantrymen. Guys, you know, that weren't the cavalry. They still don't, remember, they were only 36% cavalry. The other 64% were not on horses, and they needed to be protected from this 10,000-man, angry, nomadic death charge coming right down at them. Now, what this allowed Wei Qing's forces to do was this gave Wei Qing's forces valuable protection from these cavalry charges. These archers are no match for a cavalry charge. These crossbowmen, while they can shoot from distance, the moment the horse is on top of them, they can't do anything. They're in big trouble. And this mobile fortress that they sort of built haphazardly allowed the crossbowmen and the archers to keep the enemy in range, allowed them to be useful. And most importantly, Wei Qing on the backside of this, of this sort of ringed formation got a 5,000-man cavalry unit together and was deployed to reinforce and eradicate Xiongnu forces that, you know, that managed to infiltrate the chariots that had been ringed together. And this was huge. He didn't send them outside of this mobile fortress, but he used the cavalry you know, to fight fire with fire. The crossbowmen, the infantrymen, the archers, once a horse broke through the mobile fortress, you know, a nomadic horseman breaks through, the archer's useless. The crossbowmen can't do anything, you know, to reload itself and to be, they quickly point up and see a, a man sitting eight feet above you with a sword. You're eventually going to die. And eventually is the wrong word, because you'll be dead quickly. But Wei Qing gets 5,000 essentially police cavalrymen to stay inside the ring and defend off any of the Xiongnu forces that got in. Unbelievable tactic, and it proved unbelievably effective. And the Xiongnu forces were actually unable to breach the Han's lines. And now what we see kind of here is sort of the same thing we see when Julius Caesar wrote his commentaries. When you fight a nomadic tribe, they often fight with vigor. 
They fight angry. Julius Caesar had a myriad of quotes talking about how they would these nomadic peoples would come down screaming, unbelievable tenacity and energy and intensity, and they would just decimate you. But once the Romans figured out that if you got the Gauls and the Celts into a second wave, the tide would turn because their initial energy would be neutralized. And the same thing happens here with the Xiongnu. So those that are into Western history, try to think about that angle at it. The Xiongnu have this 10,000 men cavalry charge, seeing the low morale and tired leftover meat of the Han military, not on horses, these are crossbowmen and these are foot soldiers. They come down the hill and they get hit with this mobile, this mobile fortress. And they get neutralized with the inside of the fortress cavalry of the Han. And as we know from Rome, when dealing with these barbarians, the second wave is much less intense. The Xiongnu's initial energy is dissipated and a stalemate begins to unfold as neither of the sides ends up making any real move. No real victory seems to be in sight. It seems to be a complete lock. And the stalemate lasted for a very long time, several hours until dusk. Imagine fighting. Go to the gym, punch the punching bag a few times. You're tired after about 40 seconds of intense punching. Imagine fighting off with a giant 40-pound spear, horsemen for hours with your life on the line. The adrenaline wears off eventually, and eventually you get tired. You're getting wounded. You're getting shot at. But then, again, like one of these great things of history, a sandstorm comes over the battlefield and completely obscures vision. And Wei Qing knew that this was his chance. He takes his main force, and the Han cavalry was able to use this unbelievable cover, you know, the sand, to do the same thing Hu Jibing had did, and encircle the you know encircle Chan Yu's army from both flanks. And quickly, the Xiongnu's lines collapsed. Their morale breaks the moment they see Han soldiers attacking them in the dark through this you know sandstorm. Imagine in the night. You're fighting at dusk, it's turning into night, there's a sandstorm, and all of a sudden you see Han cavalrymen charging through you. You thought you'd been doing okay, and out of nowhere, like a surprise, the Han dynasty's forces break through. Now, in seeing that his forces were completely overrun, the Chan Yu, you know, the name of a leader, the leader of the Xiongnu, he escaped under the escort of a few hundred men, and the Han forces end up killing, according to the Book of Han, over 19,000 enemies, and pursued them for another hundred miles to the base of the Kangai Mountains, where they went into a fortress. Now, the fortress was called Xing, which is located in the Orkhon Valley. And they spent a day there resupplying, regrouping. But the Han forces come in and burn the stronghold to the ground and returned in triumph, just like Huo Chubing had. And remember the Eastern Division. We'd completely forgot about them. They weren't at the battlefield. They completely took all these soldiers out of Wei Qing's main force. One of the reasons the Xiongnu attacked in the first place. And this eastern flank finally shows up. Li Guang and Zhao Shiqi had gotten lost in the desert and had missed the entire battle, only rejoining on the main army's walk home. Li Guang and Zhao Shiqi were immediately summoned for a court-martial for failing to accomplish their orders and putting their whole battle strategy at risk and Li Guang, you know, this sort of idea of honor, 
was super humiliated. And you know, this was his last chance. You know, he had been promised his vanguard position, had a lot of bad luck, and the emperor knew about this bad luck. Told Wei Qing, you know, don't actually give him that vanguard position because he's bad luck. Seeing, you know, this battle is his one chance to, you know, rewrite those wrongs, was humiliated that he missed the battle that was his last chance to prove himself and committed suicide to preserve his honor. The Western theater where Wei Qing had ended up fighting actually proved to be strategically decisive. The Chan Yu's main forces got so defeated that they were actually never able to recover. The leader, you know, the Chan Yu was gone for 10 days. And all the Xiongnu soldiers just thought he was dead. You know, you're gone for 10 days. There's no text. You know, hey, by the way, I retreated. He had no way to contact his men. And, and in the thick of battle, in a sandstorm at night, he disappears. Of course, he's probably dead. And in fact, they ended up stalling a new leader to replace the Chan Yu. And he finally appears, but by then it's too late. The Xiongnu forces have to retreat even further north with their, with their entire southern border, which, remember, is the northern border for the Han Dynasty, is completely obliterated. And that is essentially the end of this war. Now, a truce is signed between the Han Dynasty and the Xiongnu, and this is going to last for seven years. And this ends, same as the first one, after the Xiongnu can't stop their own instincts. Now, it seems like they have the same thing going on. There's a truce, but the Xiongnu don't seem, in the, you know, and same in the Chinese eyes. They're not civilized. These are raw barbarians, and they break this truce when they raid in 112 BC at Wu Yuan. But the Xiongnu, after doing this raid, they never recovered from the strength of their past glories, and they would never really become the Xiongnu that they once were. And eventually they break into smaller groups and end up falling into the same issues that they had before they had become the unified Xiongnu. Now, when they get back to the capital, and they get back after crushing the Xiongnu, remember, Huo Chubing was the one that was supposed to have the grand battle, and Wei Qing was the one that ended up taking the great battle. The Xiongnu prisoner had confessed and had suggested that the, that, you know, that the Chan Yu of the Xiongnu's main force was actually on the east side of this whole front, but this was actually false information as, we ended, as Wei Qing ends up finding out the hard way. And we know that Huo Chubing's battle was unbelievably straightforward, while Wei Ching's was unbelievably bloody. A night battle in a sandstorm. I mean, you can't even make this up for a Hollywood movie. After the war, they get back, and Huo Chubing did not end up getting the decisive battle, you know, that chance to beat Chan Yu and the Xiongnu's main force. But Emperor Wu still likes Huo Chubing. And he offers Huo Chubing you know, to help him build up a household, and help him get married, and help him establish his own, you know, great legacy to last for hundreds of years. But Huo Chubing with an unbelievable quote from history. According to the Book of Han, says, quote, The Xiongnu are not yet eliminated. Why should I start a family? End quote. What a quote. He gets back. The, the, the truce had been declared. The Xiongnu are obliterated. A shell of their former selves. And there are some that are still alive. And some of them are still, you know, going to go back into the steppe and do their own thing. And eventually, as we know, some of them eventually raid but they're never going to be the threat that they were. Everyone knows that. And Huo Chubing refuses to have help from the emperor. You know, you think about getting like a recommendation letter from a high-ranking, you know, person in your college or your job. It means a lot. Imagine when the god figure of your whole society offers to help you build a household. 
You can marry anyone, have the best house, the most power, and you turn it down because the Xiongnu were not yet eliminated. Now, this statement ends up becoming an inspirational quote and a very you know, patriotic motto for the Chinese. And what's interesting is that he was, you know, always thought of to be a very humble man. Sima Chen in the Shirji, you know, the, the grand historian, that Huo Chubing paid little regard for his men. He was a man of work. And he also believed, though, in the hierarchy. He refused to share food with his soldiers, and he, quote, regularly ordered his troops to conduct Tsuju games, despite them being short on rations. And when Emperor Wu, quote, had suggested him to study the art of war by Sun Tzu and Wu Zi by Wu Qi, Huo Chubing claimed that he naturally understood war strategies, and he had no need to study. Man is ice cold. Sounds like a grizzled veteran, but he's 19. He's a 19-year-old, 20-year-old man. The emperor is suggesting he reads books in, by the greatest generals. You know, the greatest generals of today have read The Art of War. Some, if they really love, if they really loved old military texts, read Wu Zi. And he says he doesn't need to read them because he doesn't need to study military strategies because he naturally understands them. Now, remember Li Guang? He had a son, and his subordinate Li Gang assaulted Wei Qing. You know, Wei Qing's plan to you know, send him into the barren desert and to come back at the right flank at the right time. You got to give Li Guang a little bit of slack here. He essentially was sent out into the barren desert with no communication. Come back at this certain time and we're going to fight. The time ends up not being the same time. He ends up missing the fight, probably from no fault of his own. They got lost in the desert a little bit, and they ended up meeting up with the, with the, with the returning Wei Qing army. But you sent him into the desert. And Li Gang, the son of Li Guang, assaults Wei Qing after the war. And Wei Qing, very cool customer, forgave the incident. But Huo Chu Bing was a hard man. And he would not tolerate any disrespect towards his uncle. Did you know that? Wei Qing was Huo Chu Bing's uncle in some weird family tie-in. And during a hunting trip, Huo Chu Bing invites Li Gang to come with him. And Huo Chu Bing shot Li Gang and killed him on purpose for disrespecting his fellow general and his uncle. What an interesting character. The emperor loves him so much that he covers for Huo Chu Bing and states that, quote, Li Gang was killed by a deer, end quote. Killed by a deer. You can't I mean you can't write history like this without thinking it's fake. But this is what they wrote. But Huo Chubing, while he didn't eat with his soldiers, was still a compassionate leader. You know, during the end stages of the war, when it was clear that he was doing great things, Emperor Wu awarded Huo Chubing a big cache of precious wine for his achievement after he'd beaten them in the east at the Gobi Desert. He took all the wine and poured it into a creek so all of his men downstream could share the taste of the victory. Where he poured that wine is now a city pronounced Juchen, which translates directly to wine spring. Huo Chubing eventually dies in 117 BEC at the age of 24. After Huo Chubing's death, the aggrieved emperor orders the troops that he had had in that, in that force to build five commandieries 
flying out from Chang'an to Maoling, where Ho Chu Bing was buried in a tomb that was shaped like the Qi Liang Mountains. Now, the Ho Chu Bing and Wei Qing destroyed the Xiongnu. Ho Chu Bing was among the most important generals in Chinese history. Han historian Bang Gu, in the Book of Han, summarized this poem, quote, The champion of Piaoji, fast and brave, six long-distance assaults like lightning and thunder, watering horse at Lake Baikal, conducting rituals at Kunti Mountains, conquering the area west of the Great River, establishing commanderies along Qiliang Mountains, end quote. Huo Chubing ends up being immortalized. Wei Qing is still remembered, and the Xiongnu are completely destroyed. Now, with retrospect, we all know that the steppe nomads in Asia will come back many more times. And honestly, with a vengeance. But in this podcast and in this story of the Han, the Xiongnu are destroyed. The nomadic threat is eliminated. Now, like every other war in ancient history, we know it's never the last. And the victory against the Xiongnu seems to bring in you know, a Pax, you know, an Asia Pax, the Pax Asia, the peace of, of Asia. That's not the case. The Han Dynasty have a lot more things on their plate. And they have a lot more things that they're looking at that they want to conquer. Issues at home that they need to quell. And tons of other drama that will be discussed in episode three. Now to leave you though, with a connection with Rome. This is a story I saw online. Now, the story is as such. When Crassus went to Parthia, you know, part of the triumvirate in Rome, he went to Parthia in an unauthorized war to give himself military accolades because you kind of needed that for politics. He was rich, but you needed more than just wealth to be a consul. He ends up getting his forces completely in a pickle They end up getting completely routed. Crassus's head is cut off and dumped on with molten gold and sent back, you know, a way to make a statement about money. But a lot of Roman soldiers end up being captured in Parthia. And what we know is that the Parthians end up taking these soldiers and they oftentimes impressed a lot of the people they captured into their forces. And the Chinese historians to the West ended up facing off against the Parthians. Well, a subsidiary of the Parthians. And they wrote that there was a fish-scale formation of red shields that they were fighting, and that these were foreign fighters. Fish-scale formation, red, and from Parthia, 10 years or so after they were captured under the rule of Crassus by the Parthians? You tell me. Was it the Romans? Now with that, that is the end of episode two, as it is the end of the Xiongnu. Check back in soon, and episode three will be out, where we discuss the rest of the Han Dynasty in our final installment of the Han. Thank you for listening, and see you next time.